Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Here's something new and exciting. Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World is now on social media with uplifting slash mind-bending updates throughout the week. So please follow me on Facebook at David Sachs Spiritual Tools or on Instagram, David Sachs. Okay, Spiritual I'm glad Tools. you're here. Um, this talk is sponsored on the occasion of Avi Chai's Bar Mitzvah, and we're just wishing him all the happiness and strength and, and all those good things. So let me, let me just start with... Um, a uh, a story that happened to me last week, and you know, we I'm always moved by this this thing. It was is it was words that absolutely changed my life that I heard from Reb Shlomo. He said that people intuitively feel um, how far away God is. He said. The greatest Kiddush Hashem, meaning the greatest sanctification a person can make, is to communicate how close God is. So, so ever ever since then, it, it just seemed to me that that really, basically, everything I ever say is is just kind of dedicated toward that idea of trying to communicate and for us to be able to grasp on on some level the closeness of God. And, um, you know, I think our generation, maybe every generation, but maybe our generation especially, needs that information uh, more than others. Um, Because, well, for so many reasons, for so many reasons, I think that this world is absolutely filled with wonder. And, And I think as science, and remember, God, who made everything, also made science. And I always like to quote that amazing Rambam, which, which is that science and Torah can't disagree because the one who created Torah created science and vice versa. So if they do disagree, then you just don't understand the science correctly or you don't understand the Torah correctly. Um, but in an age where everything is seemingly explained, I think psychologically, emotionally, um, God somehow seems for many people more distant, not not closer. I think that if you look at all the amazing explanations that are coming down into the world as God explaining to you how he's running the world, then all these revelations can actually lead to a, a greater sense of closeness. So it's all how you how you approach it. But but for for you to be able to have the the vessels, so to speak. Um, the wherewithal, the emotional wherewithal, to experience everything as aspects, expressions of God's closeness, first you have to sort of like just believe that God is close and believe that God fills the entire world and all of existence and that we exist within him. Um, I remember Gedalia Gerfein said so many years ago, but it changed my life again, these words. Same idea, by the way, different point along the spectrum. He said, what's the difference between a monotheist and a polytheist? So, so a polytheist believes in many gods. So they say God is in the ocean and God is in the trees and God is in the sky and, you know, God is in whatever it is, the animals. Um, 
a monotheist, someone who believes in one God, says the entire world exists within God. So, so that's the closeness of God. So as that, as just a, an introduction, I want to tell you something that happened to me this, this, this past Sunday, um, a week ago today. So that night, Sunday night, this place, this story takes place at Sunday morning, but that night, Sunday night, last week was my mother's yard site on, on Yom Yerushalayim, okay? Uh, and, you know, um, yeah, I dive in different places, but, but, but this particular place, my regular place as of late, um, not on Shabbos, but during the week, the, the people who lead the davening are like all super pros. I mean, they go, you know, at a hundred miles an hour and their Hebrew is ultra polished and, and everything like that. And, and the, the congregation has like very little patience for someone who who is stumbling over the Hebrew and things like that and making people wait. And it's just for me, you know, it's a, that, that is not my strong point. Like reading Hebrew out loud publicly at extreme high speeds, I I just it's a failing, you know, and it's 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 too stressful for me. It's just I it's just it's stressful. So. So I, I, unless I absolutely have to, I, I avoid uh, leading the, the prayers, you know, for that reason. On occasion, I'll do it, but for the most part, if I can avoid it, I do. So, so anyway, it's Sunday morning, you know, it's another uh, of endless examples of, of that place, of the, the people leading the prayers going, you know, a million miles an hour and just with perfect Hebrew. And, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's my mother's yard site tonight, and uh, I, you know, it, it's it's customary and it's it's appropriate to to lead the davening on on a parent's yard site. It's it's considered a very good thing to do. And I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to do it? You know, it's just it's it's too much pressure. I just, I'll say kaddish, I'll I'll do the things you're supposed to do, but but in terms of leading the davening, uh, I'm not going to do it. So I made my peace with it, that I wasn't going to do it. Um, a few hours later, my, my mother-in-law was, was staying with us, and uh, she liked soup from this particular restaurant, so I, I went to get her some soup. And I walk into the restaurant, and there's a person there that I haven't talked to in at least a year, maybe two years. You know, maybe longer, Okay. It's been a while, but I've known him forever, you know? So I walk into the restaurant, and he's sitting there. And he he calls me over, David, come over here. So I, I, I walk over, and he says, you know, I was thinking about you yesterday. And I said, oh, yeah? And he says, yeah, I was remembering something that you told me a while back. You said that you don't like leading the davening for the congregation because you get tongue-tied. And I thought to myself, you know, you really should push yourself. And so that's why I'm calling you over to tell you this. (laughs) Can you imagine? Can you imagine? A few hours ago, I had had that exact conversation in my head about my mother's yard site. 
And here's a person telling me word for word who I haven't spoken to in the longest time, the exact, the exact words going on. You know, sometimes you say, you, 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 you experience something as a sign. You go, oh, that's a sign. This was not a sign. This was a direct transmission. This was like a, literally, a transcript, you know? So, so I made a point of, of leading the davening that night. That's the, that's the point. That's the point. And... You know, I went to another place, you know, where it was a little less pressure, but, you know, it came out, came out pretty well. But the closeness of God, right? The closeness of this world with the next world. Remember, the Gomorrah says that this world and the, and the world of souls are like two hairs on the same head. That's how close they are. And another bit of imagery, which which you just you know I'll, I'll never get past, is you know when you stack cups, like when you have like paper cups or whatever it is, you put one cup inside another cup. So this is the Gemara. The Gemara says in that same section in Gemara Pesachim, it says that the world of souls and this world are like two stacked cups. In other words, the world of souls exists within this world, right? Like two stacked cups, like the, the the bottom outside cup would be our world, and the cup that's within that is the world of souls. So, so the closeness of the next world and this world. Um, you know, when when God gave us the Torah, and He's constantly giving us the Torah, right? That's what we're celebrating tonight. You know. Um, and of course, there's a custom to stay up all night if you can stay up all night. And if you're living in a community, there are going to be classes all night. And actually, this is one of the great nights actually to learn like far out stuff because all the rabbis prepare like really like like very fascinating topics um, that that you won't really hear spoken about so much during the year because they want to keep you awake. So there's there's. There's a lot of like very way out topics that that get covered uh Shavuos night. So so I really recommend it if you can if you can do it. Um anyway, the idea is that when God gave the Torah at Mount Sinai, it says heaven came down to earth. Right? So that's this idea of the world of souls and our world intersecting, but but the connection between the heavens and the earth became openly apparent. When, when God spoke at Mount Sinai, it says that our souls flew out of our bodies. And, and what did we see when our souls flew out of our bodies? We saw that the next world is also completely filled with Torah. That the, excuse me, that the entire universe is made out of Torah. See, this is the big step that, that I think anyone who takes Torah seriously, anyone who wants to take their lives, this universe, you know, the purpose, the meaning of everything seriously. This is like one of the big transition points is when you realize that when Judaism is talking about the Torah, they're not talking about a book. It's like a very fundamental sort of like step that everyone who wants to sort of expand their consciousness needs to take. 
the entire world is actually made out of the Torah. That the, that the Torah is the infinite compressed into the finite. Right? So for that reason, we can, we can realize something really fascinating about this holiday of Shavuos. Um, first of all, you know, it's, I'm not trying to knock anyone, but if you just sort of want to take a temperature check of the world, right? You just want a, a spiritual barometer of the world. It's very instructive that most people have never heard of the holiday of Shavuos. So here, here Shavuos is celebrating like the climactic event in human civilization, in world civilization, literally. The giving of the Torah. And they, they, they don't know it. So, so unfortunately, that, that, that's where we're at. But, um, but that's okay. You know, you know, everything is as it needs to be. We're, we're just sort of like resetting and, 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 and getting to an even deeper place. But we're just sort of taking a path of ignorance to a path of depth. Um, I'll give you a, a reference for, for what I'm talking about right now. I, I, I heard in the name of Rav Cook um, that, that he, he, he talked about the holiness of atheism. So that, that might seem like a, a massive contradiction. What are you talking about? Though? How can atheism, which is the denial of God itself, like how, how can you call that holy? So, so listen to this, and it gives you a, a, just a little taste of how exalted a, a soul Rav Cook was. He says, you know why atheism is holy? Because atheism has reject, rejected not just God, but it's rejected every untruth about God. So since an atheist has sort of like cleaned the slate of everything that's not true, now he's one step away from God. But now one step away from being able to accept the reality and the, and the truth of God. Because with his disbelief, he's wiped away all the lies. You know, one of the one of the great uh, teachings, in my opinion, is 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 that it's a it's a story, and I, I forgot who the Rav was, but let me just still say the story. Which is, someone came to this Rebbe and said, said, you know, I don't believe in God, and the Rebbe said back to the person you know, heard all the person's complaints and everything like that and all their understandings of God and said, you know something? I also don't believe in God. And the person was shocked. They said, Rebbe, you don't believe in God? And I listened to this. Amazing words. The Rebbe says, the God that you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. The God that you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. Meaning to say that this person's grasp of godliness was so inaccurate and so riddled with falsehoods that he said, you know something? If that's who you think God is, I agree with you. There is no God. But that's not who God is. That's the point. That's not who God is. You know, it's the, the Dubna Bhagat, um was famous for his, the, 
examples that he'd give, and he, he, he gives something, you know, along those lines. It's sort of a, a companion teaching to that one, which is that, you know, back in the day where people traveled by, you know, ship liners and, and there would be porters to carry people's suitcases and everything like that. So there's one porter and he sees like this giant stack of suitcases and very heavy, you know, luggage. Big would take a lot of work to transport all of this to the person's home. But the person the person figures that, you know Oh Oh, could you uh could you mute yourself please? Um so Hey, Jenny? Jenny, if you could mute yourself, that would be great. I am so sorry. Oh, no, it's all good. It's all good. So so they see, he sees this, like, you know, massive heavy baggage, and he says, um, and, and he, he starts carting it to the person's home, this rich person's home. And he's thinking the entire time, like, that person better give me a huge tip. That person better, better. You know, he's getting angrier and angrier, but but really his expectations are building wildly and he's like lugging this stuff. It's so heavy, it's so heavy, it's so heavy. He finally gets to the home of the rich man and he knocks on the door. And the rich man says, that's not my luggage. Like, I, I had a small bag of diamonds, right? Very easy to carry. And the Dubna Magid says that, that this is so many of us that... That we, that we lug, we lug the concept of, of, of religion, whatever that is, right? You know, Torah d- does not have a word for religion. Uh, that, that, that in itself is astonishing. You would think that every word, every religion would have a word in its language for religion, but, but, but there isn't one because it's just, it is, it's reality itself. So, so anyway... It's the same idea that the God that you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. Here's a person who's like struggling with all of these baggage and thinks that that's what God has given us, that that's the nature of our relationship with him. And, and, and God comes back, so to speak, in this example and says, no, I have like this little bag of diamonds, so very, very light. So, so, so much of... The relationship is 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 getting these sort of like these 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 premises set in our mind, and and what's constantly coming to undermine them is that this world is a realm of work, and there is suffering in this world, and there is lack of understanding in this world, and 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 that can contort our entire perception of who God is, but we can't allow it to because then we sort of like step over into the realm of untruth. See, in other words, something can be hard and beautiful at the same time. There can be pain and there can be beauty at the same time. And it's not a contradiction. It's not. Um, so with that in mind, let's go deeper. Shavuos, the giving of the Torah, is all of the time. But there's a capital for the giving of the Torah. And that's the day that it was given. That's what we're going to celebrate tonight. And you know, I gave you an example one time. It's, it, it's something that I came up with one time. You've all seen um, these prisms, these crystal prisms. 
and white light goes in on one end and it refracts through the prism into all the colors of the rainbow. So white light contains within it all the different spectrums of color. And if you refract it through a prism, it actually separates out. And I'm sure you've all seen like representations of that. And so the idea is that really all of the holidays themselves, you know, if you get a color wheel, one of the great counterintuitive things is that if you see a color wheel with all the different colors and you spin it really quickly, it appears before your eyes as though it's white. It's like, that's far out. Like, why would that be the case? Like you would think of if any color wouldn't come up when you spun it quickly, it would be white. If there's red in it and there's like blue in it and there's green in it, maybe it will just look like if I took paint and I combined red and blue and pink and everything like that, it would look like a mess. That's what it should look like if I spin it quickly. It's really, really like mind bending that it looks white of all things. So the white light actually contains all the colors, okay? Now, if you think of that in a spiritual way, basically, every single day, all of the holidays are going on every single day. That's like the, the spun wheel. Like if you substitute red and blue and purple and pink for Shvuas, Sukkot, you know, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, and you spun it, and then it comes out white. So that, that's the white light. Why? Because all of these holidays, all of these events are constantly happening. But then they refract through time and space, through the dimension that we're in right now, and they hit different calendar points of the year. And that then becomes the headquarters of that idea. So of all of the holidays happening all of the time, Maybe the, the most important one of all of them is Shavuos. And if you look at the observance of Shavuos, everything is pointing to the fact that Shavuos is happening every single moment, every single day. And let me just give you a couple of examples of that, okay? Every holiday, every Torah holiday has a date that's written in the Torah itself. Yom Kippur, it says right in the Torah, is the 10th day of the seventh month. Rosh Hashanah, it says, is the first day of the seventh month. Sukkot, it says, is the 15th day of the seventh month. Pesach is the 15th day of the first month. And it, it goes through all of the holidays. It gives you a date. Shavuos, which is one of the three main holidays with Sukkot and with, and with Pesach, right? the Shlosh Regalim, right, where we all went to Yerushalayim, it doesn't give a date. Why doesn't it give a date? It's the only holiday that doesn't have a date. It says count 50 days from the time you left Egypt. Why doesn't it have a date? But, but it's more mysterious than, than what I'm saying to you. You know why? Because the Gomorrah has a big debate was the Torah given on the sixth day of Sivan or was it given on the seventh day? And it pretty much says, you know, it was given on the seventh day of Sivan, which means that we who celebrate, as, as the rabbis instituted, that we should celebrate it on the sixth day, the day that we're celebrating the giving of the Torah wasn't when the Torah was given. So not only is the Torah not given a date, but even when we celebrate the giving of the Torah, it's not on the date that it was given. 
Why? Why? Let me add one more aspect to this. Any time that you make a blessing over something, you have to do the act that you just made the blessing on right away. You're not allowed to make an interruption. That's called a hefsik. Can't do that. So, so like if you say you have an apple, you say, and then you put the apple down and you go to the movies and you come back and you pick up the apple. You have to make another bracha because you made too big an interruption. Okay. With that in mind, and that is the rule. That is the rule. Why is it that you can say a blessing over the Torah in the morning, which you have to do before Torah study? Everyone should be mindful of that. Why is it that you have to make a Torah, that you make a blessing over the Torah in the morning and then you can go to work, right? And then you can come back late that night and you can open up a book and start learning Torah and not make another blessing? Why doesn't the concept of a hefsik, of an interruption, apply to Torah study? And why is there no date given for the giving of the Torah? And why do we celebrate the acceptance of the Torah on a day that the Torah wasn't given? (laughs) It's because the Torah is constantly being given. (laughs) And the rabbis didn't want to, God himself, who wrote the Torah, didn't want to put a date on the Torah because it's constantly being given. That's the idea. When it says, Hayom, Hayom, today, it says that you have to, every single person has to feel as though they're receiving the Torah today. Today. It's ongoing because the entire world is made out of Torah. That's literally the fabric of the universe. That's what's connecting everything. Did you ever wonder just the logic? I give tzedakah and it rains. That's what it says. If you if you do chesed and things like that, it's going to rain in its proper times. Now, just think about that scientifically for a moment. What what sense does that make? What is the cause and effect in any logical realm that I give charity and then the clouds open up and it rains? Seemingly, there's no connection whatsoever. That, that shouldn't be the case. And yet it is the case. Do you know why? Because the wiring of the universe is according to the mitzvahs of the Torah. So there are all these, like, you know, you like in acupuncture and acupressure and things like that, where you, like, if you squeeze someone's big toe, it's supposed to, like, open up their sinuses, like in acupressure. I mean, that's what I heard anyway. Why? Because everything is connected. So the entire fabric of the universe is connected because the world itself is made out of the Torah and the mitzvahs are these, like, acupressure points throughout the entire universe. So now, now that leads us to the next question. So let's go deeper still. It says, count 50 days from the time you left Egypt to to the giving of the Torah. Okay, great. So, and the Torah is being given on the 50th day. Fantastic. Okay. And now I'm going to make a blessing every single day before the counting, leading up to the number 50. And then there's just like the wildest, most counterintuitive thing in the world. We count up to 49, and on the 50th day, which the whole thing is leading up to, we don't count 50. 
this, this, the count stops at 49. It's so Jewish. It's so Jewish. Like, why are you stopping at 49? Like, the whole point is to get to 50, right? So what's the answer? The answer is that the difference between, say, the seventh day and the eighth day, or the 19th day and the 20th day, right? Or the 34th day and the 35th day. Like, those days are very close to each other. But the difference between the 49th day, the day before the Torah was given, and the 50th day, the day that the Torah was given, is dimensions, dimensions apart dimensions apart. We can't count the 50th day. The 50th day is the dimension where heaven comes down to earth. And you know what the rabbis say? You ready for this? God counts the 50th day. We can't count the 50th day. God counts the 50th day. Because it's beyond, 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 beyond. And yet, the amazing thing is it's coming down to us. We enter into the 50th day. But to count the 50th day, to put parameters around it, can't do it. Now with this in mind, with this in mind, I want to try to answer a question using this as a frame of reference. In Parshas Midbar. We just read it on Shabbos. It begins with the counting of the Jewish people. It's a census that's being taken. And there's something very, very deep and beautiful. The fact that Sefer Bamidbar, this new book of the Torah that we just started, um, starts with a counting. And, and let, me tell you, let me tell you this idea, and then we're going to get a, to the question about the Levium, because the Levium aren't counted along with the rest of the Jews. Why is that? Um, but we're going to get to that in a moment. But first, let's make a, a, a very strong point, which is Reb Shlomo called Sefer Bamidbar the book of mistakes. And that's because all of the mistakes that the, Jew, that the Jewish people made during the 40 years in the desert are chronicled in Sefer Bamidbar, in the book of Numbers. And you'll see the, the sin of the spies and, and, and the, the rebellion of Korach and the whole incident with Baal Peor, with the, the, with the Midianite uh, women and um, the graves of craving, on and on and on and on. It's just one, one disaster after another in terms of our mistakes. So, psychologically speaking, after a person, you, me, right? And I'm sure it happens all the time, right? After we make a mistake, we think we don't count anymore. We blew it. We, we don't count. I made a mistake. It's over. So how does God begin the book of mistakes? By counting us. Isn't that beautiful? I think that's beautiful. I think that's absolutely beautiful. Telling us, you know something? You made a mistake. You still count. And isn't it great also that 
the counting comes before the mistakes because it's right at the opening of the book before we even make a mistake. In other words, how do you survive the process, which is traumatizing, of making a mistake? By being forearmed with the information that you count even if you make a mistake. I heard from Rabbi Grossman, Aleva Shalom, something very interesting along these lines. This is very important. Everyone's got to really, as Rabbi Shlomo would say, open your hearts. Like, really try to receive what I'm telling you right now. There's a mitzvah in the Torah that when you go out to war, that you're not allowed to be afraid. Now, how is that humanly possible? Right? A person's in a foxhole. There's bullets whistling overhead. Right? Or what's going on in Israel right now. Right? How do you not be afraid? How do you... It's like humanly not possible not to be afraid. So Rabbi Grossman said, it's true. If the soldier's in the foxhole and there's bullets whistling over his head, it's true. It's impossible not to be afraid. Unless, unless they got rid of the fear before they went into battle. That's a life-changing teaching. If a person knows that they count and they're raised with that knowledge, even if they make a mistake, then when you make a mistake, you know you still count. So, you know, the world is being recreated every single moment. So every single moment is a new beginning for us. So you know something? Right now, we're doing something good. We're learning Torah together. So we're not making a mistake right now. And the world is beginning right now. So let's arm ourselves with the information that we count. I count. You count. We all count. Even if we make a mistake. So that we know if that moment happens, and God willing it won't, but life is life, right? So you say, okay. Okay. I'm going to tell you something unbelievable that Rabbi Nachman said. You ready? You ready for this? He said, "I'm the tzaddik of all the tzaddikim, right? And I hold the keys of heaven and earth in my hand." And he says, "And if I make a mistake, I'm still the tzaddik of all the tzaddikim, and the keys to heaven and earth are still in my hand." Amazing. Amazing. That's amazing. But this is how we have to go through life. All right, now let's get back to our question. Remember, you would think that the whole counting would lead up to us having this like great like party moment when we count the number 50. Doesn't happen. <laughs> we get up to 49, we get to the top of the mountain, but we don't get we don't get to count the number 50. Because um, it's dimensions beyond, okay? Now, isn't it interesting that the Parsha that we're basically reading every single year at this time, right? At this time, virtually every single year, is talking about this census where you count all of the Jews, but you don't count the Levium. Okay, so who are the Levium? And by the way, whenever it talks about the Levium in Hebrew, it's always using the, the, the word, because I'm going to give you the gematria of this in, in a few moments, so it's important. Ha-Levium, okay, which means Ha is a prefix, which means the. Ha-Levium is the Levium, okay? So 
Why aren't we counting the Levim? And we do, by the way, later. But the Torah makes a very big point that you don't count them with the rest of the people, that you count them separately. And the age that you begin counting the Levim starts at a, at, at a much um, earlier age. For the rest of the men, um, it's starting at age 20. And for the Levium, it's starting at the, at the age of one month old. So everything is different about the Levium. Now, just, just as a, a, a reminder, in case you're wondering, who are the Levium and why does he keep on talking about the Levium? <laughs> so the Levium were one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they were the teachers of the Jewish people. Okay, and the Kahanim, who were the, who were part of the tribe of the Levium, right? That was the, Le- the Levium and the Kahanim are all part of the same tribe, Halavium, the Levium. Okay, including Moshe and Aaron, they were members of this tribe. The they were in charge of the tabernacle, right? The Mishkan in the desert, which was the prototype of the base of Migdash. And as we've learned together, that was a portal connecting heaven and earth. And if you think of it in terms of the human body, I always like this imagery. The Mishkan is like the neck, like the head contains your brain, and that's the seat of the soul, okay? So that's like heaven. And then you have your neck, which connects heaven to your body, which is earth, okay? And and a proof for that, by the way, is if you look at the Rashi, when Yosef and Binyamin his brother reunite. It says they cry on each other's necks. And if you look at the Rashi there, it says that they were mourning the destruction of the Mishkan in Shiloh and the base of Mikdash. Okay, so, so, so very specifically, this, this sanctuary is called the neck because it connects heaven and earth. All right. Now, with that in mind, let's give an answer. I want to give an answer to our question. Why aren't the Levium included in the count with the rest of the people, and yet they are counted. So they're not counted, and they are counted. What is the secret to the mystery of that? So I'd like to suggest the following. If you look at the word halavim, who these people were, who we're talking about here, the gematria is the number 91. And um, those of you who have been following these talks know 91 is like one of the biggest numbers. Why? Because it's, it's the combination of two divine names, which basically stand for heaven and earth, right? Just like we were talking about with 49 and 50, heaven and earth. So it's, it's Yudke Vavke, that's 26. And um, 65 is Alid, Dalid, Nun, and Yud, right? That's another divine name, which stands for this world. And Yudke Vavke is like the beyond. And together they add up to 91. And that's the Levium. Isn't that interesting? What did we say? The Levium are in charge of teaching Torah. They're in charge of the Mishkan, which is the portal between heaven and earth. And they're counted and they're not counted. Why? They're counted. That's their earthly aspect. That's, that's teaching everyone, right? But they're also overseeing that connection to the beyond, which is they can't be counted. And they're bridging that gap. They're bridging that gap as the people who are like overseeing the Mishkan and Torah study. 
which is coming from the level of 50 to the level of 49, right? From the next world into this world. So they're counted, but they're also not counted because they're straddling these two realms, right? Moshe Rabbeinu, who's a levy, goes up into heaven and brings down the Torah. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? It's just like, wow, it's great. It's great. It's really great. And by the way, to this day, if you look at, and Rabbi Wolfson points this out, this is not my observation. If you look at all of the great rabbis in Jewish history, a disproportionate number of them are Levium or Kahanim, which is the tribe of Levi, which is really interesting. And he says, if you actually look in the Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu gives blessings to each of the tribes. And he blesses the tribe of Levi. He says, you will be the teachers of Torah to the Jewish people. And you see that throughout history, that, 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 that has been fulfilled. Okay. But let's go deeper still. Let's go deeper still. There's a topic that I haven't been wanting to talk about, but, but I came across something. My friend Adam pointed this out, and I feel like I can say something on it. And, you know, who am I? I'm nobody, and I know nothing. So, you know, feel free to dismiss whatever I'm about to tell you right now, because I'm talking about things in the realm of things I don't understand. And that's my way of introducing trying to talk about what happened in Maroon, the tragedy that happened in Maroon, and the rocket attacks that are going on in Israel right now. And again, who am I to speak about such a thing? I don't know anything, right? But I want to share with you something. So everybody knows that in Maron, on Lagba Omer, right, where we're celebrating the, the life the life of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the author of the Zohar, right, which is the repository of secrets, the headquarters of the secrets of the Torah. Um, that there was a great, great tragedy. The Jewish people, right, so many people died tragically. Um, and and we're still grieving over that, and then before we can even catch our breath, basically this, this war starts. And I think we've all experienced it as a one-two punch, you know, like in the worst way. One horrible thing followed by another horrible thing. So, so with that in mind, though, with that in mind, though, <clears throat> As I mentioned, my friend Adam showed me something that really blew me away. And it was from the Umshin of a Rebbe. And so I'm quoting him. This is not me speaking right now. This is one of the greatest tzaddikim in the world who's absolutely one of the foundations that the entire world is resting on right now. There's no, no question about it. And, um, you know, I can go on and on and on and on about who the Umshin of a Rebbe is, but just... Leave it at this. He's one of the greatest tzaddikim in the world today. And anyone who wants to try to get a blessing from him, he lives in Bayit Vagan in Israel. And I would 
highly recommend going out of your way to try to visit him. Um, anyway, so, so he said he was told about what happened in Maron. And he said the following. He said that the whole idea of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's Avoda and how it connects to Lagba Omer, right? The day of his Yurtzeit. And, and just, just a quick moment of why we celebrate like the day that he died, which might sound morbid, like, well, he died that day. Like, why can't you be like the rest of the world and just celebrate birthdays like everyone else? Like, why are you observing like their last day on earth? And there's a, a great lesson here and a great uh, understanding of Judaism that comes from this, which is that it's not morbid at all. When a person is born, they're just potential. But we don't celebrate potential, you know? We celebrate accomplishment. And on the last day of a person's life, they're all accomplishment. And, you know, once you hear that, you're like, why do we celebrate our birthdays at all? Like, this? Well, I guess during our lives, we don't have a choice. But, but, it, but you know, you, you, get, you get how impactful that teaching is. We, we are celebrating everything the person accomplished during their life. So, so that's why there's this great celebration on, on Lagba Omer for the life of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And now listen carefully. The Amshan of a Rebbe said that that, that that whole, that everything that he was trying to do was all about sweetening judgment. In, in Hebrew, we say hamtachas hadinim, which means sweetening, sweetening judgment. That means that, that, that means like if there's a decree in Shemayim, a decree in, in heaven that's like a, a negative decree or a harsh decree, like the holy people. And if, you know, anyone who's read like Hasidic stories and who knows about the life of the Rebbe's and the in, interior life of, of Rebbe's, like so much of what they're doing is they, they have this like sixth sense, this like amazing spiritual radar. And, and the greatest among them are able to divine if a decree has been made that's a negative decree in, in heaven. And then they marshal all of their spiritual might to try to, to try to knock out these harsh decrees. So he said that the whole, the whole idea of the celebration of, of, of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's life on Lagba Omer is sweetening these, these judgments. And now here comes the next part. It says that when he heard about all the people that had died, he grew silent and he thought, and then he said these words. I'm paraphrasing. Who knows what decrees they were able to wipe out through their sacrifice. Did you hear that? Who knows what harsh decrees they were able to cancel through their sacrifice. What a awesome understanding 
of those events. And again, this is not me speaking. This is in the name of the Umshan of Rebbe, one of our greatest holy people in the world today. And then I thought to myself, you know, maybe, and this is just me talking, and like I said, feel free to dismiss my words because they're just talk, they're just coming from me, and what do I know? But I thought maybe with those words in mind of the umption of a Rebbe, maybe the idea that all these rocket attacks have happened right after the tragedy in Maroon is not a coincidence at all. And here's my question, because everyone's got to like really try to come up with an answer to this, because there's only one answer to this question, but you got to knock it into your head and, and, and understand it for yourself, each and every one of us. Why aren't these rockets hitting more targets? There's hundreds and hundreds and, and, and even into the thousands of, of rockets being fired. And, and they're, not, they're not hitting their sources. They're not hitting, they're not hitting anything. Okay, some are, some are. There's, there's no, absolutely, 100%, some are. But if you actually just do some very basic math, you realize that the number of miracles that are happening right now, right now as we speak, there are rockets being fired. The number of miracles that are happening in front of our faces is unbelievable. So someone said to me, well, what about the Iron Dome? Can I tell you something? And I'm talking in the realest terms right now. There's no such thing as an Iron Dome. You say, okay, but, but I can point to it. There is a, such a thing as an Iron Dome. Of course there's such a thing as an Iron Dome. But on the other hand, do you think it's the Iron Dome that's doing it? It's God that's doing it. But maybe, maybe, and here's the point. Maybe there was a decree that many more of these missiles were going to hit and the loss of life was going to be substantially greater. And maybe, maybe these, these people, these incredibly holy souls that left the world on Lag Bomer and Maron were able to cancel the decree of an event that was just about to happen that no one knew that was about to happen. When the Umshan of Arebi said those words, that who knows, maybe, maybe these, these people who left the world, right? that their sacrifice was able to annul harsh decrees. He didn't know that the rockets were about to start being fired. He didn't know that. So, so instead of seeing it as two blows, like one after another, which, which it is still, it is still very much so but maybe possibly to look at it in a, in a slightly different light, that that first one was able to save us in ways that we'll never fully understand from the impact of the second. It could be. It could be. 
So, so the level of 50 is that level that we don't know, that we don't know and that we can't know. But isn't it interesting, and we'll, we'll wrap it up with this idea, isn't it interesting that that level of 50, which is when the Torah is given, which is the level that we don't know and we can't know, we can't even count it, is the day where we get instructions, meaning the Torah, of how to live in a world that we can't understand. I'll say that again. Listen carefully. Isn't it interesting that on the 50th day, which represents the realm of that which our minds cannot fathom, is the day that we get the instructions of how to live in this world which we can't fathom. In other words, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how things work. I don't know how to explain all of these events that are happening. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And yet, I know how to live in this world that I don't know. That's the greatest gift imaginable. Because on the deepest, realest level, we can't understand, but we've been given as a gift by God the tools to live in a world that we can't understand. That's unbelievable. And that's why we have to grasp onto the Torah with all of our might. With all of our might. Because it's literally the beacon in the darkness. And as a friend of mine once said, and we'll, we'll stop with this, but I always think about it. At the end of 120, when we leave this world, we're going to get the answers to all of our questions, but we're not going to be able to do anything about it. Now, we don't have the answers to all of our questions, but we can do something about it, right? We don't know the answers to everything that's going on in this world, but we have a way to live in this world that we don't have all the answers to. And that's the Torah. And that's what we're celebrating tonight. And that's what we're celebrating every moment. Because the world itself is made out of Torah. It's not a book. It exists in book form. But it's not a book. It's the fabric of the universe itself. And so, I just, uh, I'm so happy. I'm so happy to be able to to do whatever I can, you know, in terms of learning Torah, in terms of connecting with it. When I was 14, I started going to Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach Shul. I was just a kid, you know, and one of the first times I went, it was Simchas Torah, right, where you celebrate finishing the Torah and starting it again. And, you know, I, I, I wasn't raised religious. I didn't know much. But someone handed me the Torah, and I remember just holding the Torah and hugging it so hard and thinking that it was my whole life. And it is our whole life. It is all of us, all of us, all of us. And the more we connect with it, the more we shine a light into this world and light up the darkness. 
What follows now are some questions you know, and answers. It says that when we were at Mount Sinai, we encamped like one person with one heart. And, you know, the they're sort of like, we, we talked about the Levium. They're really, they're really three groups, you know, just if you want to just look at, at the the, at the Jewish people from from one perspective, there's the Kahanim, the Levium, and and the the y- Yisroelim, right? And if you take the first letter, this is the Magalia Mukos, one of the great Kabbalists. He says if you take the first letters of that Kohen Levi Yisrael, it spells the word Kli, which means a vessel, which means that when we were united at Mount Sinai, that unity itself created the vessel for us to be able to receive the Torah. So one of the real preconditions of really receiving the Torah in the deepest, most beautiful way is, is, is to have that, that type of unity. And, you know, one thing that I noticed is there's a lot of people who are, um, they're tolerant of everything except intolerance. And, and then when they encounter intolerance, they themselves become intolerant. So all of a sudden, it's like, but they imagine themselves to be very tolerant people, except if they encounter intolerance, in which case they become more intolerant. You know, it's, there's something very ironic about that. And, 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 and so, so let's just be mindful of the idea that we're not tolerant of everyone until we find someone who we really disagree with. Like, that doesn't mean that we, if that person is spewing hate or in, or injustice or whatever it is, we can't um, we can't try to counteract it in a in a in a constructive way, but but let's just be mindful when we who are preaching tolerance and love begin to hate, because we need to have insight into when we ourselves cross the line and when we ourselves become part of the problem. It's, it's, it's ironic that sometimes bad times and opposition are, are that thing that, that creates, creates unity. And I remember Rabbi Shlomo said something. It's, it's not exactly on the same topic, but it's, it, it is related in, 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 in an intriguing way, just in terms of as an observation of human nature, that... Um, a lot of times when you feel closest to someone is when you're missing them, is when they leave town, right? Isn't that kind of funny? Like it says, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Like you can be married to someone. And then it's really when they are on a trip that you are really like appreciating them and missing them and loving them. And then they come back and, you know, you start fighting again. It's it's very ironic, you know, and and so here is the cool part. Rip Shlomo says that 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 a person that 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 you have to when you have to love someone who's right there, you have to miss them while they're there. And interesting, the concept of being with someone next to someone and and missing them at the same time, as though they're not there, but they are there. So it's this. It's this level of longing that you're sort of like reintroducing um, uh, to 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 the present situation. So, so yeah. So, 
So we shouldn't need something negative. We shouldn't need that person to be out of town or or for there to be a war or whatever it is to create that longing and that loving for each other, you know, that that we should be able to sort of like harness like those more exalted levels in less extreme circumstances. This idea that that the soul lives on, um, you know, we're so used to thinking when you take, let's say someone serves you dinner and it's like a great dinner and then you take the last bite and then you go, dinner's over, right? Or let's say you, you, you're reading a book and you love this book. It's, you know, sometimes, have you ever read a book that you didn't want it to end, right? And then, but you get to the last line of the book and then you close the book and the book is over, right? But people are not meals and people are not books. When a person gets to the last day of their life, we should all live long. We don't end. (laughs) We're not a meal. And we're not a book. And, 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 you know, I think that we'll be happier and we'll actually live more productive, better lives if we understand that, that you, you see, death can be a great motivator because we only have a certain amount of time and we got to get stuff done, right? So that's true. That's true on one level. On the other level, though, we have to realize that we're not going anywhere, <laughs> We're absolutely not going anywhere. And and so you a person has to balance those those two ideas. But what's unique about this lifetime is the life of the soul within a body is relatively speaking to the eternality of the soul. It's a very limited window that we have right now. We can do things right now while we're in a body that we're not going to be able to accomplish when we're outside of a body which is why we have to make every single day count massively, right? But, but, but at the same time, not to live in fear because we're not going anywhere. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them. 